Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have a very special guest. Happens to be my dad, Dale Davidson. Hi, Dad. Hello. You know, this is all about the history of the Suquamish Valley. And my dad is an author of a couple books, uh, the titles of which are Dead Man's Clothes. And uh, the other one is called Breakfast at the Brown Bag. And specifically, the first book that he wrote, Dead Man's Clothes, is a uh, interesting, fun uh, book about uh, humorous stories that were told about the experiences of growing up outside of Carnation next to this camp that had a lot of interesting characters in it. And my dad really captured all those and uh, some interesting stories in this book. And the camp itself has a long history. Dad, you want to kind of go through the progression of what you know about this place that, that uh, I grew up knowing is Camp Don Bosco, but this has been several different things through history. It was a CCC camp until 1935, and then it, the state took it over as a convalescent home, and it was anybody on the streets, panhandling or anything, they just sent them out there. They cleaned them up and gave them a set of clothes, a donated suit. <laughs> they all wore suits, and uh, it was in them days, the clothes that were donated were just nicer clothes. Mm -hmm. The story my mom told is I asked her when I was six years old to be a wino, do you have to wear a suit? <laughs> growing up, my most interesting things was Milwaukee Railroad on the tracks every day, Griffin Creek and the bum camp. And when I'd be leaving, mom would say, where are you going? And oh, just for a walk. She'd say, you stay the hell out of that bum camp. That's right where I'd go to the bum camp. It wasn't anything like uh, uh, I wasn't concerned about it. I never went in the rest, but they had a big German shepherd named Franz. And as soon as he seen me, he was right along my side. And he wouldn't have let me go anywhere I couldn't, wasn't supposed to. Is that amazing? Yeah. And I think the old Dutch taught him that. And uh, he'd see me on the way home, and then he'd turn and go back, to the, back to the camp. I went there all the time because then people were so unusual. Yeah. And uh, entertaining, kind of. Yeah. And so, my favorite thing, the bump camp. So, so this book was written about these people that were basically, uh, you know, it was a homeless population. They were uh, the city and the, the county and, and with the help of the state. They were trying to get them out. Uh, There's some newspaper articles written about this. They were trying to get them out of dangerous conditions and an abandoned hotel and other things uh, that were in Seattle. They set this uh, camp up, and this was a great experiment that happened. This was like the late 30s into the 40s, even into the uh, early 50s, right? That this yeah, about 51, I think. And then they evidently abandoned it, decided to do something different. To give everybody just a little bit of context about this camp, uh, my dad, you referred to it as a uh, CCC camp, which was, but before that, it was actually even a logging camp. Yeah. And then it became a CCC camp, and then it went into this. And now a lot of people uh, and listeners to this program 
may have uh, grown up as Catholic youth and known it as Camden Bosco because literally thousands of kids would go to summer camp uh, from parishes, uh, Catholic parishes all over the Puget Sound. Uh, I understand the diocese is actually kind of using this as a cut. They still own it. They contracted out for different things now, but at one time, it was really a very, very popular youth camp. So what the place that's referred to as Camp Don Bosco is this very same facility that was once this uh, convalescent camp that people, locals, probably not politically correct thing to say, but everybody referred to it as the bum camp because mm. there was quite a few individuals mm. at this thing uh, too. I mean, their population was probably into the least hundreds, wasn't it? Was there- oh, yeah. Like up to 125, 145 one time. And all single. Yeah. There's no, no no female, all male. All male. Uh, but there was what they misfits. We had a, a dwarf that uh, he didn't want anybody around him. And he had his own little room and he fixed clocks. If you come around him, he'd scream until people laughed. And that worked pretty good for him. He was just fascinating. So I peeked in there and he let out his scream. And when he calmed down a bit, uh, I said, I'm Dale. And I've never seen the inside of a watch before. And I'd like to watch it. Fix them. Well, it was okay. And I could sit down there and watch him. And he was, uh, I, I don't know, Ida said a spastic. He hands everywhere. But right at the final moment, he could pull out that smallest screw with his eyeglass and everything. He's just fascinating to watch. Well, he seen I was more interested in what he was doing than looking at him. So he'd become comfortable with me. He didn't like to go to the mess hall because everybody look at him while he's eating. And uh, so I'd go get his food for him. Well, they'd let me double up on everything that I knew he liked mm-hmm. and leave everything else. So he really liked that. I'd bring mm-hmm. him food. And we'd become really good friends. And hey. I, I was only six years old. Wow. But he was uh, quite a guy. And he told me his sister had all the same. She had dwarfism too and spastic and all these things that would really, you know, be a burden. But he was just as happy as could be left alone dealing with his watches now it wasn't necessarily a camp where they really emphasized like trying to tool people with new skills but if they exhibited a particular talent or something like that and they could accommodate they would allow for that right mm-hmm. like this like this person they would allow people to bring watches from town for oh, this yeah. folk to work on and nice clocks that have been in the family that quit He'd fix them. He was talented at that. He knew how they worked. But another character that I liked was Doc. And Doc was a medic, but he had an infirmary there and he'd hand out pills and (laughs) manage people. Well, the pills would show up in the mail in a shoebox, just full of pills. The hospital, somebody passed away, they'd just rip it all in and send it out to the camp. And my job at the infirmary was taking all the little pills and putting them in the right place because of the markings. Well, back then, you know, there's 
not the pills that got to date with hundreds. No, and if you can imagine reusing pills like that would be totally forbidden now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that's how I met Doc Johnson. And uh, well, another part of Doc was he raised rabbits for friars, but he didn't like to butcher them. And dad had a trap line, so I knew all about skin and weed skin and muskrats and me. He said uh, he had a 22 rifle he bought from Sears. And uh, <clears throat> I borrowed it all the time, and then I'd have to take it back and clean it, take it back. And he said, Dale, you dress out and clean them six rabbits, you can have that gun. Well, I did that in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And I made him sign a paper that I could show my dad that, yes, I earned this gun. Mm-hmm. I've still got that gun right here. Oh, wow. Wow, isn't Sears that... Roebuck single shot Remington. So, so it was a it was a really interesting place for you to be able to grow up next to. There was just like today, there was there was a homeless problem. The the, the government was trying to do something about it. This was their attempt, and just like you can imagine, probably would happen just like it would happen again today. There was opposition from town folk about these people coming. There was a lot of, and you can find even evidence with doing Google searches in old newspapers, the Seattle Times and stuff at the time, where people would object to, you know, bringing these quote unquote questionable characters to town, to their community. To help build PR, though, the camp would do certain things like uh, all the gentlemen build toys, right, for the kids. And And repair Open toys. And that was quite a production, was it yeah, not? And they handed out Christmas. They had a Santa Claus, and that was Doc. Liberty <laughs> Face guy. But what the attraction that I couldn't stay out of there was not only all the cur- colorful people, but the cooks, the best bakers in the world, cinnamon rolls, stuff like that. And uh, the, the cooks all wore white. And they were alcoholics too, but they drank expensive whiskey, so it was all right. <laughs> Not cheap wine. But the thing I remember when the bread dough was rising by the head furnaces and steam and all that, well, for the heat, but by the kitchens, they'd always have the bread. You didn't know what it was going to be at night, the dough, but it'd be as big as a round table. And they do twists and cinnamon rolls and all that. And that smell, bread bacon all the time, that kind of brought me into Oh, it. yeah, I would imagine. And the meals they had, you wouldn't believe. They had roast beef uh, probably twice a week. And so good food, good clothes, a warm place to stay. It was easy, even though people probably went through alcohol withdrawal and other things because a, a, a mm-hmm. huge part, a huge part of the population were alcoholic, right? And mm-hmm. so they would go through maybe various withdrawals, but yet the retention of people at the camp, which wasn't fenced or mm-hmm. really surveilled, actually was pretty high, right? Yeah. People would uh, they had no place to go, and leaving would have been a fairly easy thing because there was a uh, Milwaukee Road train that ran right by that didn't move too fast. No, upgrade. And that's uh, another thing that people, some of the hobos would spend time there on their way through between harvestings and whatnot. They'd just get off the train and stay at the camp a while and then leave. And there was a hobo camp right by our barn that was marked 
they all knew of there. And people confused the hobo with the bum. The hobo, no, they were. <laughs> they were truly just yeah. transient people that. One uh, time I seen the camp was occupied. And it was a young guy in probably 20s, early 20s. And he had a can, coffee can going there and he was boiling eggs. He got from Amos Chicken Farm for helping clean eggs and whatnot. He had a dozen eggs. And then he stole apples off of our tree there. <laughs> and he was stuffing his pockets with his boiled eggs. And I said, uh, well, you must not be going far. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, a couple of apples and a few boiled eggs. And he held up an egg and he said, see this egg? I'll be eating that in Chicago, Illinois after tomorrow. Now, well, I don't even know where in hell Chicago is, but I asked <laughs> Dad, I said, is that possible? He said, well, yeah, he'll take that on over the mountains and he'll catch that train straight shot to Chicago. Yeah, he will be. Wow. Well, years later, when I did fly into Chicago, I seen them vast railroad yards, and I thought I'd come. Wow. You know? Yeah. So yeah. you were introduced to so many. And the book really does, uh, uh, folks, I hope you can check it out. It's called Dead Man's Clothes. It's a it's a published book, and it's pretty easy. There's lots of good, uh, colorful stories about these individuals and more in there. Uh, such an array of characters and stuff like that. Something I've never really talked to you about. Uh, how... How much staff was at this thing? How much paid staff was there? Well, not many soldier ones. <laughs> <laughs> Lopez, I get a kick out of that. That was his name. And I can't remember his first name. He was the director of the camp. And uh, he drove a woody station wagon. I think I had 47. And maroon with the wood sides. So that was kind of neat, too. I liked that car. The plumbing shop, all of that kind of stuff, you could work there. And like uh, Shorty, my friend, the night watchman that gave me the watch, he uh, slept all day long. Wow. And windows were painted on his little part of the barrack. He was in the end and it just sealed him off. Well, he'd sleep during the day and then he was fire watch and then chase the bears out at night because they had a garbage dump. So the bears were there all the time. Mm -hmm. You could walk out there and see a black bear about any time you wanted. But uh, a thing that that great American sport, baseball, that bunch of winos would put a teams together. And uh, once a week, like on a Sunday, they'd have their ball game. Well, Shorty was a catcher. <laughs> he didn't even have me. <laughs> Shorty wasn't too tall. And, uh, Outside of a fire hydrant, he could hit. <laughs> I used to go over there and cheer him on. Well, then when I got my motorbike, the wizard, I'd go over and run the, the baseline to keep the weeds out. I'd just turn them up really good, and they liked that. And I'd do all this trick riding for them. I had just finished that one day, and I was coming, cutting the barracks pretty close around the corner. And this leg come from nowhere. <laughs> and I split the crotch with the front wheel of the bike, and he was hanging onto the handlebar. <laughs> Something terrible's happening to me. <laughs> he, he fell off, and I drove up over him and took off out of camp. But he was all right. I seen him getting up, so I left. Didn't take my bike into the camp for a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, hey, we have to break for just a moment. So uh, we'll just break for a couple of moments and we'll come back and keep talking about the uh, wonderful history of this camp that exists about approximately two miles south of Carnation. And at this time period that we've been talking about, it was the uh, what people in town referred to as the bum camp. So mm-hmm. we'll be right back with you. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back. We're here continuing discussion with my dad, Dale Davidson, who wrote this book called Dead Man's Clothes. It is about a camp that was a uh, later on, Camp Don Bosco that many thousands and thousands of uh, people know because they attended Catholic youth camp uh, at this facility. But before that, it was this uh, convalescent camp that was to deal with the homeless population and alcohol uh, plagued population that existed. Uh, there was a lot of post-war people that uh, had uh, mm-hmm. uh, World War II things. And this camp continued on into the early 50s. You've established that they had a very I guess they didn't really force the people to do much. They were just pretty much just trying to give them a safe place to exist. So they didn't really have much of a reason to have any kind of uh, uprising. There was hardly ever a fight or anything. Isn't that right? And they could earn a few dollars. They could go to town, but they couldn't bring any wine back in or taken away. Right. So they'd hide it. And that was Larry and I's first uh, business. We'd gather up all the wine they had and sell it back to the next one. <laughs> and yeah, folks, uh, so you know, uh, Larry is my dad's uh, brother, older brother that, uh, that he just re- referred to. And uh, of all these characters, so this camp ended in existence. And I don't know how long it took before uh, the diocese purchased it as a youth camp. But uh, after operations ceased and and folks had to uh, you know, just go various places, I guess, there were a few that did actually remain in town. And one mm-hmm. of them I want to talk about just for a moment, because this is where the history actually bridges to somebody that I could remember. We had this person, once again, there we using terms that not necessarily might be politically correct, but everybody referred to him as the old Russian. Everybody in Carnation referred to this guy as the old Russian. He lived in a literally just a shack of a building that he kind of constructed. In, well, I, he probably had help with his uh, landlords who were the McDevitt family that had a large estate farm, not too far from where that camp was. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he had tur- they had turkeys and they had uh, strawberry fields at one time, mm-hmm. uh, you pick strawberry fields and a, uh, some other stuff. And he didn't have no place to go. He barely spoke or didn't practically speak any English, mm-hmm. right? And I can even remember this gentleman himself because he lived until the 70s, I believe. He passed away sometime. I think... Uh, his name was Tom and he lived on the riverbanks. He actually bathed in Griffin Creek and uh, my uh, parents and my friend's parents and uh, Greg and grandparents will occasionally send over a care package of some fruits and, and vegetables and things like this uh, to, to his care. And I, I remember being just because I was a kid and I, 
couldn't understand him and he kind of was like a mean looking or something like this. I guess I was scared of him. There was no reason to be, but I just put the package on the door and knock, knock on the door and run like heck. And he would, uh, he would get the uh, stuff, but he actually had an incident. He was a very, very strong man. And one time he, uh, dad, you want to describe that is talked about in the book, but he, uh, tractor. Yeah. The tractor incident. He, uh, was the hardest working guy I've ever seen. And he'd take the clinkers out of the furnace, smash them with a hammer, and then he'd repair the roads in the chuck hole at a wheelbarrow. And he'd all day long fixing roads, maybe even way out of camp. <clears throat> and Larry and I took a tractor ride. Larry was in the third grade, and I was in the first. And we got over a little too far going around his wheelbarrow. And the tractor flipped over off the bank <clears throat> and lit on Larry. And it fractured his skull, and it, it was really an accident. And me, it threw me off, and the only thing head first into a brush pile, and I broke my nose. And that was about it. But he lifted that tractor off of Larry. He just the second try, it come up and lifted it off and rolled it over. And then he picked Larry up and carried him to the house to my mom and dad. And um, he was really a nice man, but I'll never forget. I felt he saved Larry's life. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, the thing I was going to say about it is he had this shack that John let him build and probably even give him material right on Griffin Creek. And he'd get salmon out of there to feed all of his cats. But when John died, the daughters, they thought, well, he's been here so long. We're going to build him a new house. He built him a nice new little house and set it out there. And for all they knew, he was really comfortable now. Mm -hmm. Electric heat and everything. He didn't live in that thing at all. <laughs> he was right back in his man cave there. Mm -hmm. But if anybody, and he stored his stuff in there. But, but uh, he never lived in it. And I can actually, this I, I'm chuckling now because I can actually remember this uh, myself because I can remember that new... And they tried so hard. The daughters tried so hard because they actually built it. And if you looked at it, it had modern amenities to it, but it looked like the old one. It was just like a little box. And I think that they were really trying to be non-intrusive, try to be give the guy a little bit more comfort, but build something that like resembled his old shack. But it was like a new little portable thing that they moved out there. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. And the two of them they resided uh this uh, property is next to what is referred to as full circle farm now um it was uh along the riverbanks uh, i don't think it was the exact property there but it's right along the you could see these two dwellings right off of 203 the carnation fall mm -hmm. city road they're both very very visible and he was uh uh he was one of the individuals of, of only there were just a few that stayed behind uh the um uh after the closure of the camp and uh so um uh, and ended that history but yeah and he lived to be a very old age mm -hmm. right i think mm -hmm. wasn't he like 100 years old or something when he passed away or they think and they i don't know if they really fully knew because he basically his story was just like everybody at the camp had such a unique interesting story his particular issue was that as far as we can tell and what the stories are that he was a sailor that was left basically maybe tied one on or something like this. And the boat left without him and then he didn't speak the 
didn't speak English, left Seattle. And next thing you know, he just was picked up in this big sweep of folks that were homeless and he wound up at the camp. And then yeah, he really and then and then he was such a hard worker that the McDevitt family, who my dad was referring to, they used him as a handyman and had him cut firewood and things like that for them, right? Mm-hmm. And gave him a place <clears throat> to live. Yeah. So uh, the the camp existed for a little over a decade. Did you ever hear any reasons about why they see? Was it just political pressure or cost, or why did they stop it? Just some people in town, and you know. Every now and then there was a, one that get killed on the railroad tracks or one get hit on Tolton Bridge, uh, you know, staggering around in dark clothes on mm-hmm. suit and then get hit by cars and people. Uh, was it orderly enough for people? They yeah, felt they, it. And uh, <laughs> they drink anything they could get a hold of, you know, like uh, mentioned once uh, alcohol and uh, shoe polish. The goodness store drink all the shoe polish, <laughs> but uh, turpentine, skim milk. I mean, but them were the real, real pro- yeah, bad alcoholics. And there was no real ramifications when they did something like this because there wasn't the staffing, and they weren't like sentenced to this place, right? They were just like put there, and so there was no like real severe ramifications to no. these people. If they did go off and get drunk, if they just returned to the uh, to the camp, eventually they considered that success, right? Mm-hmm. All the staff drank, <laughs> and the chef probably couldn't get a job because they were alcoholic. But they drank whiskey, and that was that's fine. They weren't winos. Yeah. And uh, Doc, he could be sewing somebody up, and he'd have his bottle of whiskey there one for the patient <laughs> for him. and uh but you think about the chefs they had their own little cabin each one and uh, that job there and they had everything they needed and they could drink booze so there must have been a communication amongst the transients that rode the rails and stuff like that because they all knew that this little camp that happened to be in close proximity to this much larger com- government-ran convalescent camp, they knew that that camp was there and that they would be able to get like free eats kind of, they were able to, pardon the expression, bum off of the bum camp. Yeah. They would be able to- Nobody get turned away for food. That was a policy. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and boy, they, I tell people about it and they kind of get the idea, oh man, that mess hall was something else. <laughs> so you probably, uh, there's some people in the town that were uptight about the about uh, the uh, unruliness that they may have perceived that was brought about by there. But I bet that uh, you were, who was still a, a young man at the time, you probably kind of like sad to see that. Oh, the, I was. The, uh, because this was a place where people were, hoping that they could get better and some did mm. like the like the one we referred to as the russian i believe his name is tom like tom he was a success story and others that uh, uh they found some normalcy to their life they found mm. the ability to do their crafts and and uh, things like that so what an interesting uh mm. place that, that that has been what a what a history of very 
busy logging camp for Cherry Valley Logging Company. And then uh, the later a CCC camp where people, all young men, all young men that were put to work as part of the New Deal of uh, the Franklin Roosevelt era. They built uh, things we use today, like Sideview up there in the, in the one at Preston. That's the Sideview uh, Pool. Yeah. And the Preston House. And actually, we referred to and talked about in one of my previous programs. If you look up the episode Preston, we talked about that. We talked about the fact that it was built by the CCC. Yeah. And those those CCC men, they went and built these public projects uh, uh, like the Preston House, like the Sideview Pool. Uh, uh, like the fish hatchery, I believe, right? The fish hatchery mm -hmm. that was a Tulpa Creek. A lot of the parks, you know, the national parks, but up here at Deception Pass, all that railing and whatnot with the stone, uh, that was all built by the CCC. Artistic little like uh, barriers and stuff that kept people, uh, uh, the rails that kept people from going over the banks, that was all done by the CCC. And then it became a Catholic youth camp. It was that for several decades when I grew up? And I we'd hear the uh, the singing around the campfires and and the this whole army of buses that brought uh, campers uh, to the area. And now it's uh, still by the diocese, but uh, it's kind of contracted out and not used nearly like it was at one time. But it's what a history that one little place uh, that most people refer to today as Camp Don Bosco. What a very interesting and long history that uh, that is had. So, Dad, thank you for uh, sharing with us today about uh, this camp. Uh, like I said, folks, if you want to pick up uh, the book, Dead Man's Clothes, you just have to Google that. It's about the uh, camp in Tolt, Washington. Uh, my dad's name is Dale Davidson, and you can easily find that book for sale on the Internet. And It's an uh, auto on... Uh... Amazon. And on Amazon? Yeah, you can uh, download it. And I read for the book. Oh. Seven hours. To do that. And I wasn't pleased with it. I never <laughs> listened to it. <laughs> well, it's common where people don't listen. So, so uh, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. So once again, Dad, well, thank you for this uh, wonderful time. And uh, folks, check back next week where we continue to explore the interesting history of the Snoqualmie Valley. Bye-bye for now.